0: Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. What a wonderful psalm. It's about the Messiah, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Kiss the Son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let us go now to our New Testament reading, Luke 9. We will read verses 7 through 11. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening And he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had arisen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed Him, and He welcomed them, and spoke to them of the kingdom of God, and cured those who had need of healing. So far the reading of God's Holy Word. May He add His blessing to the preaching of it this morning. Friends, as I read from Luke 9, did you notice the question, Who is this? was asked yet again. This question has been asked many times now in Luke's Gospel. As people listened to Jesus' words and as they witnessed His mighty deeds, they were compelled to ask, Who then is this? Uh, The religious leaders of the day asked this question in response to Jesus declaring the forgiveness of sins. In Luke 5.21 we read, And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And in Luke 7.49, we find a similar story. After Christ declared a woman to be forgiven, those who were at table with Him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? These groups of people were correct that only God can forgive sins, and yet Jesus was declaring the forgiveness of sins. And they wondered, Who is this? So we have found the question on the lips of the scribes and Pharisees, and we have also found this question on the lips of Jesus' own disciples. After Christ calmed the wind and waves of the sea by the the power of His word, His disciples marveled, saying to one another, Who is this that He commands, even winds and water, and they obey Him? That is Luke 8.25. This morning I would like you to see that this question is raised again. In the passage that is open before us today, the question is found on the lips of a powerful ruler, Herod the Tetrarch, after hearing about all that Jesus was doing, asked, Who is this about whom I hear such things? Two things should be clear to us by now in our consideration of Luke's Gospel. One, in the early days of Jesus' earthly ministry, many people marveled, over the words and works of Jesus, and wondered who He was. It was clear to all that He was no ordinary man. The religious elite wondered who He was. His disciples wondered who He was. And now we learn that news of Jesus' mighty words and miraculous deeds came even to the ears of a powerful ruler, and He wondered, who then is this? Two, it should be clear to us by now that Luke wants us to ask the same question. There is a reason that he continues to tell us about this question raised by so many. He wants this question to be on our minds. Who is this Jesus? But more than that, Luke desires that we would find the answer to this question in the pages of his gospel. Who is this Jesus? Many things can be said about Jesus' identity. Here is the thing that I wish to focus on this morning as we consider this particular text. Jesus is a king like no other. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. And his kingdom is like no other. His kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom will have no end. In Luke 9-7 we read, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening and he was perplexed. Who was this Herod? Uh, The name probably does not mean much to to you. It really doesn't mean much to me. I, I know a little bit about Herod, but I certainly did not live under his reign. It would have been very significant, though, to Luke's original audience. This Herod belonged to a very significant and powerful ruling family, a dynasty, we might say. His father was Herod the Great, who ruled as governor of Galilee from 47 to 37 B.C. After that, he ruled as king over Judea from 37 to 4 B.C. He was a very powerful man. It was Herod the Great who built the temple that stood in Jerusalem in the days of Christ. He began that work in 20 B.C., And it was Herod the Great who at the end of his life decreed that all of the male children under the age of two living in the town of Bethlehem be put to death. Why did he do that? Because wise men arrived in Judea searching for the newborn king of the Jews. Word of this came to Herod. And so paranoid and power hungry was he, so brutal was he, that after making some calculations, he issued this terrible decree. The baby Jesus escaped this slaughter because his adopted father Joseph and his mother Mary were warned in a dream to flee and so they fled to Egypt for refuge. You may read about this in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 2. The Herod of Luke 9 is a different Herod than the Herod of Matthew 2. He is not Herod the Great who in Matthew 2 is called Herod the King. No, this is one of the many sons of Herod the Great Luke refers to him as Herod the Tetrarch. Tetrarch means ruler of a fourth. So this Herod was not a king like his father, but a powerful ruler who ruled over a fourth of a particular region. He ruled over the region of Galilee, where John the Baptist and Jesus ministered. The full name of Herod the Tetrarch is Herod Antipas. We have already been introduced to Herod Antipas in Luke's Gospel. He is the Herod of Luke 3.1 and 319. He is the Herod whom John the Baptist rebuked because he had taken his own brother's wife as his own. He is the Herod who put John in prison and who eventually put John to death. Friends, it would be difficult to overstate the power and significance of this Herodian dynasty. They ruled throughout this region and they ruled for a long time. Herod the Great and Herod Antipas were not the only ones to rule. There were other, others ruling in the days of Herod Antipas, and others would rule after them. They were all very powerful. Many of them were brutal rulers. Herod the Great was brutal as evidenced by that story that I just told you about putting to death of the children of Bethlehem. And this Herod Antipas was brutal as well. We might look at how he treated John the Baptist And as we will see later in Luke's gospel, he was brutal towards Jesus too. In Luke 13.31, we are told that later in Jesus' ministry, some Pharisees came to him and said, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I finish my course, nevertheless I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. We'll discuss this text when we come to it in our study of Luke's Gospel. It's a wonderful text. Here the lion of the tribe of Judah says, Go tell Herod that fox that I'm going to finish my course. Yes, I know he wants to kill me and in fact he will take part in putting me to death. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. In Luke 23, we learn that Jesus did eventually stand before this Herod. Pilate sent Jesus to Herod, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate, and Pilate, as you know, then consented to his crucifixion. The Herodians, they were a powerful dynasty. They were often brutal. As rulers of this world, they were supremely concerned with the attainment and maintenance of power and of wealth. And so it is with many of the kings and rulers of this world, even to this present day. I would ask you, brothers and sisters, to consider human history and see that those with power and authority do often oppress those under them. Men will conspire And act with violence to attain power. And they will conspire and act with violence to maintain the power they have. This is a very common theme in the history of the world. And it is a common theme in the pages of Holy Scripture too. This theme of ungodly, sinful, and oppressive kings or rulers can be traced in the Scriptures all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Did you know that Adam was a king? Did you know that? He was made in the image of God and was called by God to exercise dominion over God's world and to expand God's kingdom to the ends of the earth. Adam was appointed by God to be a faithful and benevolent ruler. He was to rule while loving God with all of his heart, soul, mind and strength and his neighbor as himself. He was to rule in submission to God and to his word. He was to rule to the glory of God. He was to rule for the good of his fellow man. But you know how that story goes. King Adam became a traitor when he listened to the voice of the serpent and sinned against God Almighty. And it is from this story, the story of man's fall into sin, that the history of tyrannical kings flows. Read Genesis chapter 4 sometime and notice the violence Oppression and injustice perpetrated by those with power. In Genesis 6, this theme picks up steam. The sons of God, in my opinion, in Genesis 6, are kings who use their great power and might not to serve God and their fellow man, but to brutally oppress others as they lived in rebellion against their Maker. In Genesis 6, 5, we read, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man, whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven. For I am sorry that I have made man, but Noah... Found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then we find the story of the flood. The flood and the new world that was brought into existence after the flood did put a check on the evil and corruption that existed before, but men and women were still sinful. And those with power did still use their power not to serve God and man, but to serve themselves and to oppress others. By God's grace, there are rare exceptions. But for the most part, this way of oppression and injustice is the norm. Those with power and authority, the great kings of the earth, do tend to oppress. Psalm 2, which we read earlier, is correct. The nations of the earth do rage and the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, we do not care to be under their authority, but we rather have an authority independent of God and of Christ, all our own. So think of the pharaohs of Egypt. Think of the many kings, even of Old Covenant Israel. Think of the Herodians, who ruled in the days when King Jesus came into the world and walked upon the earth. Think of all of them. In Luke 9, 7, we read, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening. In other words, he heard about Jesus' teaching, the miracles he performed, the great multitudes who were following him. How did Herod hear? Well, historically, Rulers have tended to take great interest in what the people under them are saying and doing. Uh, they want to maintain control. And certainly Herod, Herod had ways of knowing what was going on in his region. And we should remember what Luke told us back in 8, 1-3. Soon afterward Jesus went on through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And there were twelve with Him and also some women. And among the women mentioned we find Joanna. The wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. Isn't that interesting? So, the word about what Jesus was doing did come to Herod's ears, but we see that the gospel of the kingdom itself also made its way into Herod's own household. And this woman named Joanna was, spiritually speaking, rescued from the kingdom of death and darkness and transferred into the kingdom of life and light." However, Herod came to hear about Jesus. The text says that he was perplexed. This means he was confused. He did not know what to make of the news. The news was truly marvelous and miraculous. Here there is this man. He has a great following. He's preaching about the coming of God's kingdom. And he's casting out demons. He's curing those who are sick. Herod was perplexed by this. And I think we are also to take this to mean that he was troubled by it. He was troubled by it as well. People have their opinions about Jesus. Some said that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. By some that Elijah had appeared. And by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. I think we should notice that no one was denying that Jesus was performing these miracles. In fact, later in Luke, we are told that Herod had long desired to see Jesus because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. That is Luke 23, verse 8. So no one is denying that he's performing these miracles. Jesus did not typically perform these miracles in private. But out in the open for all to see, so that these miracles were undeniable. Not even Herod was denying that Jesus was performing these miracles. He healed the sick and lame. He cast out demons. He even raised the dead. And He often performed these signs out in the open for all to see. That He performed these miraculous deeds was clear to all. The question was, who is this man? Who is this man? John the Baptist was a very popular figure, It is no wonder that some thought that He was John, raised from the dead. Perhaps those in Herod's house were a little bit concerned that if it was John, He might take vengeance. Others thought that Jesus was the prophet Elijah, raised from the dead. The Old Testament Scriptures did indeed prophesy concerning the appearance of Elijah before the day of the Lord. See Malachi 3.1 and 4.5. The meaning is not that Elijah would rise from the dead, but that a prophet like Elijah would come. And we know that John the Baptist was Elijah, He prepared the way for Jesus, the Messiah. And finally, some thought that some other Old Testament prophet had risen from the dead. God worked miraculous deeds through some of the prophets of old. Perhaps the people thought this was one of them who had come back to life. These were all wrong, of course. Who is this Jesus? Peter would eventually answer correctly. He is the Christ of God. He is the Messiah of God and we will consider Peter's answer shortly in our study when we come to Luke 9:20 we may also say that as God's messiah he is the king of kings and lord of lords but Herod was perplexed he said John I beheaded but who is this about whom I hear such things and he sought to see him why did Herod want to see him well it does appear that he was a, a curious fellow A little bit later in Luke, we are told that he wanted to see Jesus so that he could witness a miraculous sign performed by him. Show me one of these miraculous deeds, Jesus. Uh, But I think it is also uh, likely that Herod desired to see Jesus so that he might do him harm or at least control him so that he would not lead the multitudes astray. Herod was perplexed by Jesus and wished to see him. And that does not surprise me in the least The thing that should catch our attention is that Jesus showed no interest at all in Herod or in Herod's kingdom. Jesus Christ is a great king. He came to establish a great kingdom. But his kingship and his kingdom are like no other. Jesus showed no interest at all in Herod or in Herod's kingdom. He did not assemble an army to to confront Herod. And to overthrow Herod and his kingdom. He did not seek to align himself with Herod so as to share in some of Herod's power. It's as if Jesus has no interest at all in Herod and in Herod's kingdom. In Luke 9.10 we read, On their return... The apostles told Him all they had done. This reminds us of the previous passage where Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And He sent them out to proclaim the Kingdom of God. Notice, what were they preaching? They were preaching the Kingdom of God, that is to say, the good news of the Kingdom of God, and to heal. The twelve apostles went on this first mission of theirs, just as Christ commanded. And they returned to Jesus and told Him all they had done. It is right to assume that they did what Christ told them to do. They cast out demons, they cured diseases, and proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom of God. In the second part of verse 10 we read, And he took them, and what did he do? He withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. Bethsaida was a town located to the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. It was beyond the Jordan. It was home to three of Jesus' disciples, Andrew, Peter, and Philip, see John one forty-four and 12.21. The thing to notice about this location is that it was away from Jerusalem, away from the center of political power, and away from Herod. He takes His disciples to a far-off region. Um, For the sake of time, I did not include this in my manuscript, but it would be good for you to read Isaiah chapter 9. Perhaps we will do it next Sunday, uh, because there is a prophecy about the coming Messiah And it is clear that this coming Messiah is going to minister in this region, this very region, to the north and east of the Sea of Galilee, beyond the Jordan. And that is what Jesus does. He goes to this remote place. Verse 11, we read, When the crowds learned it, they followed Him, and He welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. So crowds followed followed Jesus, and it's no wonder, given what He was teaching and the miracles He performed. And this is the kind of thing that makes rulers like Herod nervous. When crowds begin to assemble, and when they begin to follow those who are claiming to be king, Herod the Great, this man's father, put children to death in Bethlehem in an attempt to extinguish this king of the Jews who had just been born. And now we see that the son of Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, is nervous. He's perplexed because this same Jesus is out in the wilderness now and many are following Him. Notice the text says that Jesus welcomed these. I do love that comment. He welcomed these. He received those who came to Him. He received them with kindness. I think we are to imagine a very humble group of people, probably poor and needy. Many of them were sick and in need of healing. And what did Jesus do? King Jesus welcomed them. And the text says that he cured those who had need of healing. I think it is right to assume that the majority who followed after Christ were, as I have just said, humble, poor, and powerless. Some were sick and in need of healing. Christ cared for these. He cured those who were sick. In the next passage, we will see that he fed them, for they were hungry. He fed them miraculously, even in that remote place. Finally, the text says that he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Friends, you have probably noticed that as your pastor, I often speak about the kingdom of God and of Christ the King. And there is a reason for this, especially as we are progressing through Luke's gospel, there is a reason for this. I speak often about the kingdom of God and of Christ the King because the scriptures speak often about the kingdom of God and of Christ the King. It is especially true of Luke's Gospel. The good news of the arrival of the Kingdom of God and of Christ the King is central to Luke's Gospel. And it is central to Luke's Gospel because it was central to the ministry of Jesus. Who is Jesus? It's the question that keeps being raised. Who is this Jesus? The answer is that He is the Christ of God. He is the promised Messiah. He is the King of God's Kingdom. He is a King like no other. You know, it is interesting to look up all of the appearances of the word kingdom in Luke's gospel. The word appears often, 46 times in Luke's gospel. Most of the time, the word kingdom is used to refer to the kingdom of God. There are a couple of exceptions. I think at one point, the kingdoms of this world are mentioned. We'll look at that in a moment. Also, the kingdom of Satan. But oftentimes, of the 46 occurrences, the word kingdom is used in reference to this. Kingdom of God that was coming into the world. The kingdom of which Christ is king. And when you analyze the uses of the word kingdom and the teaching that is delivered concerning the kingdom, a beautiful story emerges. First, Jesus is introduced to us in Luke's gospel as a king. Specifically, He is introduced to us as the king that God promised to send long ago. He is the king who would sit on the throne of David. He is the king whose kingdom would have no end. Luke introduced Jesus to, the, to us this in this way by telling us about what the angel Gabriel said to Mary, the mother of Jesus, before she conceived. Among other things, the angel spoke to her, saying, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to Him the throne of His father David. And He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of His kingdom there will be no end. That is Luke 1, 31 through 33 And there we find the very first usage of the word kingdom. It is in reference to this kingdom of God. And in the context, the angel Gabriel is announcing to Mary that this son of yours shall be called the son of the Most High God, and he will be king of this everlasting kingdom. So who is this Jesus? From the outset, Luke wants us to know that he is a king. He is no ordinary king. No, he is the promised king. He is the son that was promised to King David in that covenant that God transacted with him. And he is the king of no ordinary kingdom, for his kingdom will have no end. This is one of the distinctive aspects of Christ's kingdom. It will have no end. You know, it is interesting, the second time the word kingdom is used in Luke's gospel is in the context of the temptation of Jesus by Satan in the wilderness. First, Luke tells us uh, through Gabriel's words that Jesus is King David's promised son, the king of God's everlasting kingdom. But after that, he informs us that Satan tempted Jesus to abandon his mission by taking him up to a high place and showing him all of the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And what did Satan say to Jesus? To you, I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Satan knew that Christ's mission was to overthrow him and to take back possession of the earth and the nations of the earth. And so at the very beginning of Christ's ministry, he made Jesus an offer. It's as if he said, let's do this the easy way, Jesus. Forget about the suffering. Forget about associating with all of these humble and lowly people. Forget about caring for them and serving them. Forget especially about the suffering of the cross. Look, Jesus, look at the kingdoms of the earth. Look at Caesar over there. Look at his power and authority. Look at his glory. And look at Herod over there. There he is in his palace. He's dressed in fine clothes. He eats the finest of foods. He's not hungry like you are now. He's warm. He's comfortable. People honor him. People fear him. I'll make you like that. I'll make you a king just like that, Jesus. A king of glory. In fact, I'll make you the king of all kings. All of the kingdoms of the earth will be yours. They're mine now. Adam gave them to me when he obeyed my voice. And I will give them to you. Here is the one thing you must do, Jesus. You must bow before me and worship me. Worship me and it will all be yours. King Jesus replied to Satan in the way that King Adam should have. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. Luke 4.8 And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from Him until an opportune time. Luke 4.13 And Christ went on His way too. He moved forward with perfect resolve. He submitted Himself perfectly and perpetually to the Father's will for Him. And what was the Father's will for Him? It was to establish the eternal kingdom of God through suffering. Christ the King is also Christ the suffering servant. And so I told you, brothers and sisters, friends, that Christ is a king like no other. Now don't worry, I'm not going to take you through every one of the 46 appearances of the word kingdom in Luke's gospel. The first two uses of the word I think are very significant. I've shared them with you. They set the tone. And I think it will suffice to say that from Luke 4.43 to the end of Luke 11, the word kingdom appears many times, and in this section we find Christ and His apostles proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand and demonstrating that it was true through the casting out of demons and the healing of the sick. So then from Luke 4.43 through to the end of Luke 11, the powerful inbreaking of God's kingdom and the arrival of God's anointed king are both declared and proved to be true by the working of signs and wonders by Christ and His apostles. The word kingdom also appears frequently in Luke 12 through 19. In this section of Luke's gospel, we find a great deal of teaching concerning the nature of God's kingdom, what it is, who its citizens are, and how it advances. And so we will encounter these teachings soon. Many of them are delivered in the form of parables. In Luke 21 through 23, We find more teaching about the kingdom, but here, near the end of Luke's Gospel, the focus is on the future of the kingdom of God on earth and the consummation of this kingdom. And so in Luke's Gospel, we find repeated mention of the kingdom of God. Kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. If you feel like I am saying kingdom, 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 I am. Because I think that is what I must preach to be faithful and true to this this book of the Bible. Luke wants us to know that Christ is the king of the kingdom of God and His kingship and His kingdom are like no other. In many respects, they are an upside-down kingdom and He is an upside-down king. By that, I mean He's a king like no other. He behaves in a way that we do not expect kings to behave and the citizens of His kingdom also behave in a way that we do not expect citizens to behave. Christ the King is a suffering servant. His kingdom is not of this world. It is a kingdom of love and grace. It advances not with the sword, but through the preaching of the gospel as the Spirit works. His kingdom is in no way aligned with Satan's kingdom, nor with the fallen and sinful kings and kingdoms of this earth. And please hear this. Christ's kingship and His kingdom will have no end. Before moving on, I'd like to make a simple observation about the kings of this earth and their kingdoms. What is the one thing they all share in common? All of them eventually come to an end. Consider, for example, the Herods. Herod the Great is dead. He ruled from 47 to 4 BC. Herod Archelius is dead He ruled from 4 B.C. to 6 A.D. Herod Antipas, the one who killed John the Baptist and mistreated Jesus before returning him to Pilate to be crucified, he's dead. He ruled from 4 B.C. to 39 A.D. Herod Philip, he is also dead. Herod Agrippa, the elder, he's dead. Herod Agrippa, the younger, he's also dead. All of these rulers, they are dead. And their kingdoms, as powerful and glorious as they may have been, they are gone. They are all in a state of ruin. Ponder that, friends. It's important to consider. All of these kings are dead and their kingdoms are in a state of ruin. You know, I think archaeology is fascinating. I don't know that I'll ever have the opportunity to travel to Egypt to look at those great pyramids or to South America, to look at those magnificent megalithic structures that are found there, or to Israel, to set my eyes on the ruins of the palace of Herod the Great, or the remains of the temple that Herod built. But if I ever have that opportunity, I know what I'll be thinking. On the one hand, I would think what most people think, I would marvel over the greatness of man. I would think of the greatness of the kings who ruled when these structures were built. I would stand amazed at at man's ingenuity and creativity. I would also see in these structures the common impulse of man to worship something. And I would think back to the story of the Tower of Babel, as recorded in Genesis chapter 11, where men desired to make a name for themselves, and so they built a tower to reach heaven. But this was not the will of God. They did not seek the one true God. They worshipped demons. They worshipped themselves. And so God confused their language and dispersed them. So yes, whenever I think about these ancient ruins, especially those that functioned as temples, I do think about the greatness of man, his ingenuity, his creativity, his impulse to worship. But do you know what else quickly comes to mind? When we consider these ancient ruins, we should also think about man's sin, man's folly, Man's frailty. Man in his folly seeks to build kingdoms apart from God. And though men are indeed creative, intelligent, industrious, and powerful, they are are frail now, for they are in sin and they are under God's condemnation. Where are the ancient Egyptians, I ask you? Where are the Inca? Where are the Romans? Where is Old Covenant Israel? Their kings are dead. Their kingdoms are gone. Their cities are in ruin. And so it is with all of the kingdoms and the kings of this earth. And so it will be with the nation in which we live. Have you ever pondered that? So it will be with the nation in which we live. But God's King, the Anointed One of Psalm 2, the one who is enthroned now in the heavenly Mount Zion, he will have the nations as his heritage and the ends of the earth as his possession. He will break the nations with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And so the psalmist was right to say, "'Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth,' Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Who is this King? The King of Psalm 2, the Lord's anointed one. He is Christ the Lord. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the crucified, buried, Resurrected and ascended one, and He sits now on His heavenly throne. He is King of His kingdom, and His kingdom will have no end. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way. What does this mean? It means that you are to come to the Son, and you are to make friends with Him. He is to be your Savior. He is to be your Lord, your King. You are to give Him honor. The honor that is due unto Him. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in Him. To to kiss the Son is to take refuge in the Son. To kiss the Son is to have Him as your King. To have Him as your protector and your provider. To have Him as your Savior. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way. Blessed are all who take refuge in God's anointed King. He is Christ the Lord. He is a king like no other and he is king of a kingdom like no other. His kingdom and his kingdom alone will have no end. Well, brothers and sisters, as I read this passage here in Luke 9, 7 through 11, I did feel compelled to draw your attention to the great difference between a powerful ruler like Herod and Christ Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords whose kingdom will have no end. I would like to move this sermon towards a conclusion by offering a few very brief suggestions for application. Firstly, may I encourage you to continue to grow in your understanding of the kingdom of God and of Christ the King. What is the nature of His kingdom? How does one come to be a part of it? What will life in this kingdom be like prior to the consummation on the last day? How is the kingdom of God to relate to the common kingdoms of this earth? Where is the king of this kingdom now, Christ the Lord? How does he expand his kingdom? How does he relate to his people? How does he govern his people? How does he preserve and protect his people? What will his kingdom be like when he returns and it is consummated on the last day? Christian, you must continue to grow in your understanding of the kingdom of God. I trust that as you do, it will have a profound impact upon your your soul. To grow more clear concerning Christ's kingdom will produce within you greater assurance, greater peace. It will prompt you to reprioritize your life, probably. Certainly you will be prompted by God's word to store up treasures, not here on earth, but in heaven. Secondly, may I encourage you to look out upon the world and the kingdoms of this world with eyes of faith. The kingdoms of this world can be seen, and they do appear glorious, but the kingdom of God is not so visible. In Luke 17 20, Pharisees came to Jesus to ask him when the kingdom of God would come. He answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Did you hear it? The kingdom of God is coming, but not in ways. Can be observed. The kingdom of God grows when sinners turn from their sins to trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. You can't see that. And even when the kingdom of God is made visible by the church when she assembles in Jesus' name, the kingdom of God looks humble and insignificant to the natural eye, doesn't it? It really does. I don't mean that as an insult to any of you, but it is true. Look at our humble gathering, look at the humble place in which we assemble. This is nothing to the world. But those with eyes of faith will see this here as truly glorious. I'm encouraging you to look at all of this, the kingdoms of this world and the manifestation of the kingdom of God, with eyes of faith, not with natural eyes, but with eyes of faith, when you go to one of our big cities and look up at the skyscrapers, or when you go to our nation's capital and behold the distinguished buildings, see them for what they truly are, worldly structures that will one day come to ruin. They may come to ruin before the consummation of all things. They certainly will come to ruin on the last day when Christ returns to judge and to make all things new. When you look upon our politicians and rulers... Or think about the militaries of this world with all of their power and might. Look upon them with eyes of faith. Look upon them knowing that these things, like all other things that belong to the kingdoms of this earth, will one day come to nothing. And when you look upon the church of God, as humble and small and powerless as she appears, look upon her with eyes of faith too. For here you see the citizens of the one kingdom that will never come to an end. For these have Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of God, the crucified, buried, resurrected, and ascended one as their king. And and this king of this kingdom will rule forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, all of this can only be perceived with eyes of faith. And so let us look at these things with eyes of faith of faith. Thirdly, as you learn about the Kingdom of God, and as you look out upon the world through eyes of faith and according to the truth of Scripture, may this affect where your hope is placed and where your priorities are set. And no, I am not here saying that Christians must never engage in politics or take interest in political affairs. That's not the point that I'm making. We should certainly seek the good of our nation and the good of our fellow man. We should be concerned with matters of love and justice. But we should not place our hope in politics or politicians or in this nation or in any other. Our hope must be in Christ the King and in His kingdom. And His kingdom, remember, is not of this world. Friends, our priority must be the advancement of Christ's eternal kingdom. And we know that this kingdom is advanced through the preaching of the Word of God and by the working of God's Spirit upon the hearts and minds of sinners. And so what must we do? We must preach, and we must pray, and we must love one another. So let us do this with resolve from this day forward. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for this beautiful Savior of ours, Christ the Lord. We speak often of Him. I pray that You would increase our knowledge of Him, that we would know who He is, that we would know what He has done, what He is doing, and what He will do on the last day. Lord, I pray that Christ would be more and more exalted in our minds and in our hearts, that we would see Him as our great King, as our Savior and Redeemer, and that we would love Him more and more. Increase our love for Christ, O Lord, And increase our love for you. For we know that Christ is the only mediator between you and man. He has come to reconcile us to you, O God. And so may you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the eternal God, receive all glory, honor, and praise. We pray this in Jesus' name and all of God's people say, Amen. Amen.